While fans are impatiently waiting for the second part of Season 2 of Invincible, we're going to go back and revisit the comic that started it all. Episode 180 of the Nerd Byword starts now. Welcome into episode 180 of the Nerd Byword podcast. Saying that out loud seems crazy. The fact that we've done this 180 times. Nevertheless, we are here to review the first trade of Invincible uh, by Robert Kirkman and Corey Walker. Uh, the first eight issues. I know that uh, Dave and I had some back and forth on how what constitutes is the first trade. It's it's switched around, but I think we settled on the first eight issues here. Uh, but first, as always, it is time for Nerd News. Dave, you got your girl. Yep, we do. Uh, well, it's uh, it's pretty exciting, actually. Uh, it's been announced recently that uh, Warner, uh, un, uh, ha- under the uh, leadership here of DC Studios, James Gunn and Peter Safran, have actually found uh, their Supergirl in uh, Millie Alcock from uh, House of the Dragon, most famously, I believe. I have not actually watched this Game of Thrones spinoff, um, although the actress certainly seems to have the look. Um, I'm looking at a variety piece right now uh, that goes a little bit in the audition process, which was written by Tatiana Siegel. And in it, uh, the uh, author claims that uh, Gunn and co-CEO Peter Safran actually flew multiple actors out to Atlanta for old-fashioned on-screen auditions uh, on the set of Superman Legacy. And they actually also asked the actors to uh, put on the Supergirl costume, which is, uh, you know, unusual in, in superhero movies. Generally, they don't start trying to slap you in a costume until they've cast you, right? Um, so this is uh, an interesting process. Uh, the closest... Um, rival for the role i guess was meg donnelly who uh, actually has voiced supergirl in several animated films including uh the most recent one i think was legion of superheroes uh and so it apparently came down to those two actresses uh and millie alcock ultimately won out now uh, it bears remembering that uh what Gunn is looking for here is a little bit different than what we would call the traditional depiction of Supergirl, um, you know, because what they're actually uh, adapting here with this Supergirl movie, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, which is um, a little atypical as far as Supergirl stories go. It's a little, uh, I don't want to say darker, but a little more mature, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, you know, the, the story sees her sort of going out into space to celebrate her 21st birthday and ca- things kind of go go sideways for her a little bit and she ends up uh you know accompanying this this character who's on a, a quest for revenge and uh, the story is a little atypical for supergirl stories traditionally speaking but it is a fantastic story and really nicely recontextualizes the character uh, of supergirl i think um and so i'm really excited for this adaptation i'm glad that casting is already underway like this it's looking really good that we're actually going to get to see this on the big screen. And if it has half as good of an impact as the actual uh, comic book did, I think this is going to be 
uh, this is going to be a movie that's going to take a lot of people by surprise. What are your thoughts about this casting, Chris? So I was a big fan of House of the Dragon season one. Um, uh, patiently waiting for season two, uh, much anticipation. And I think Millie Alcock was was great in it. That was my first um, viewing of of her uh, as an actress. And uh, I I see what they're going for with this casting. Um, I think someone on on social media had said for like a jaded version of the character, and I totally get that. I think. Um, you know, in, in a Game of Thrones type of setting, you're always going to have crazy things happening and emotional uh, stakes with characters and things happening. And I think she did a great job portraying that. Um, in fact, I, I was a little upset by the time jump, uh, how, how soon it happened. And then her her version of the character uh, graciously bowed out for, for Emma Darcy, uh, which is which is great. In, in in their portrayal as well um but uh so i'm 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 here for this um and it also reminds me of your nerd commendation of woman tomorrow that i i need to get around to reading that all right so chris that brings us to uh a topic that i'm kind of shocked we're actually talking about i'm really excited to talk about it but peanuts was not actually on my uh, 2024 uh nerd byward bingo card so uh let's do- let's go man listen as uh as a well-meaning, earnest kid from Minnesota, how can I not talk about Charlie Brown? No. Um, <laughs> you have a lot more hair than him, though. Let's yeah, I do. That I, do. Front. <laughs> I do. I um, do. No, I'm, I'm also sidestepping probably the biggest story shaking the nerd world right now because you're not actively watching professional wrestling. And I'm Oh, I'm also, aware, though. I'm aware. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm... I'm aware. I'm, <laughs> and I'm, um, I'm also like over giving oxygen to whiny fans online. Um, and also the rock is my favorite. So here, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be happy with that. I'm biased. However, uh, I am pivoting to a feel good story because the last couple of days have been particularly exhaustive on social media. So I'm, I'm going for something that, that makes us feel good. Uh, Welcome home. Franklin is an Apple uh, TV, Apple plus Apple TV plus project that is coming out will probably have been released. It's coming out February 16th, probably have been released by the time this episode airs. Um, but it writes a wrong that has been, go- that even unintentionally perhaps Dave uh, for, for decades um, has been kind of resurfaces every Thanksgiving. Um, but for those of you who may not know, Franklin um was the first black character introduced in the long-running Peanuts strip uh, and was the result of a school teacher in Los Angeles um, that asked Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, um, to create a black character after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he did so, and it appeared later that year in 1968. Um, and... When you do a deep dive on this, it's it's pretty fascinating as well. Um, Schultz got a lot of pushback when the character debuted, um, and he reportedly said, "Either you print it the way I write it, or I quit." Um, and then Franklin will probably be best known from his appearance in a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving in 1973, um, which the 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 lasting image from that is that all of the white children from Peanuts are seated on one side of the table and Franklin is alone on the other side of the table. 
And so that's a very lasting image, um, very, very hotly debated. Uh, Schultz's widow said in a blog post, quote, while it can't be known now which animator drew that particular scene, you can be sure that there was no ulterior motive, end quote. Um, however, that has, we have finally bridged that gap uh, in this trailer um, and make sure you have box of tissues handy. Um, we get the full story of Franklin, a, a child of a military family who's moved around a lot and is now struggling to make friends. Uh, he creates a bond with Charlie Brown. They are teammates in this derby competition. Um, and then we get to a table scene uh, and Linus says, hey, Franklin, we saved you a seat over here. And so a decades long, even if it is unintentional, hurt uh, appears to have been remedied here, Dave. So I think I think that it really kind of warmed my heart seeing that come across the timeline this week. I have a little bit of soft spot spot for for peanut stuff, even though I didn't grow up around it as you know, you know, many others have since I was you know, living in Europe. Um, and I always thought, you know, uh, even even you know when I first encountered Peanuts, that the the character of Franklin was was kind of a blank slate in a lot of the strips. So I'm really not. I'm really glad to see that they're you know shining a spotlight on the character a little bit. I think that's a, a sort of a missed opportunity in a lot of ways. To me, there's there's almost nothing worse than having like characters with loads of potential just sitting there and then never doing anything with them, you know? So the fact that they actually have a whole special that is focused on him now, I think is really, really cool, Chris. Yeah, and I'm excited. I may have to break down to get an Apple TV Plus subscription um, because they keep adding stuff that um, I'm excited to see. I did a free trial so I could watch uh, Monarch, um, which I previously nerd-commended, but but Apple TV is 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 putting their their name out there and in the, the streaming wars... They've got some stuff to watch, man. All right, that wrapped nerd news. When we from, uh, return from this our first break, we are byword big talking about the first eight issues of Invincible. Welcome back to our main segment. We call it our byword. And in today's episode, we wanted to take some time and look at the source material for Amazon Prime Video's hot TV show that people cannot wait for more of. Uh, we're looking at the first eight issues of Invincible, written by Robert Kirkman with art by Corey Walker, uh, as is our custom for review uh, episodes, whether it's a film, a series, a comic, a video game, what have you. We always like to be perfectly balanced, as all things should be, with the likes and then the dislikes. And then we will give an overall grade because as school teachers, we just can't resist. So let's start off with the positive, the things we enjoyed. Dave, these first eight issues, what is your first like? Uh, I would say f first and foremost, I think, is probably Corey Walker's art on this. Um, it, it's a really... If you look at like tonally what what this book represents in the first batch of issues, to me it is something akin to uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, right? A sort of back to basic superhero story about a teenager coming into his power. Like that's that's sort of the baseline starting point. Now this this series actually, um, as fans know, becomes something very very different as it develops. But the baseline 
is exactly that. Very, very similar to something like Ultimate Spider-Man. And so I think the art really accomplishes a lot here to to establish all that. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on artistically, right? So first of all, it's very clean uh, lines, very clean art, right? The coloring, uh, beautiful sort of almost pastels, right? Really colorful world, um, sort of archetypical superhero coloring, really, in a lot of ways, right? It really like immediately uh, evokes sort of that, that colorful costume feeling. And that's really, really cool. Um, and then there's like just a ton of design work happening here, you know? And I think when you are trying to build sort of, you know, it's it's one superhero story in a lot of ways, but then there's all these, you know, um, extra characters, right? Um, and not all of them are necessarily like made to be analogs of like um, DC or Marvel characters. So you get a lot of really interesting design work. Um, Adam Eve is probably one of the most instantly iconic uh, robot I think has a really cool design, particularly in the face. I think there's some really cool stuff going on there that I don't think you necessarily would do when you think robot right away, right? Um, so there's just really cool design work happening here, uh, right down to, to right down to Nolan's mustache, right? Like I mean, it's just it's there's something even iconic about that look. Um, so for the fact that they that Corey was uh, starting from scratch here and kind of like building this this world and having to, to design all these characters. It, it absolutely clicks. So I'm I'm a big big fan uh, of Corey Walker's art here early on. I, I like it a lot. It sets the tone in a lot of ways. It's really funny that you point that out as your first like because um, with issue eight we have uh, Ryan Otley come over as the principal artist for most of the rest of the series with with Corey Walker coming in for a couple of issues. But I think and I think Otley is probably. You know, the co-creator tag for, for Walker is always going to have like a lasting, you know, effect when it comes to this title. But it's so interesting um, because Otley, you know, really made his name when he got to ASM. It was with much acclaim because of the success of Invincible. So it's really, really interesting. And I and I totally agree. I think these first seven issues, I think it's a good fit because it sets up like this tranquil kind of feeling for what happens at the end of issue seven and into eight yeah absolutely and i will also say like um i've, I've read this whole series like it's 144 issues or something like that and uh i, and I think that oddly really really makes the book his own once he once he takes over and knocks it out of the park right but i think unless you're like a really really big art aficionado i think the transition is really smooth right i don't think initially mm-hmm. you even notice that much of a difference stylistically right so i had, it's, to, it's I had to look very, it up i had to look it up yeah to be yeah it's a very very smooth transition and then oddly just like kind of over time just really makes it his own um but i think it really it, it keeps that sort of thing going for quite a while that sort of look all right chris so what is your first like of the book I think the impact and the stakes make this like um like a really believable story. Now sometimes it kind of transforms over into edgelord territory of an kind of playing the hits of an image comics uh, you know publication, but I think it feels I think this world feels very lived in and it and a lot of these scenes are really relatable. Like if you 
remove the obvious tags of having a superhuman father and having superpowers yourself. Like the, like a lot of the human elements of this story are really relatable. Um, and, and that makes it all the more impactful um, when things happen. Like when um, it almost feels like a little bit Buffy the Vampire Slayer-ish when you have like the physics teacher going crazy and turning children into bombs. Like I was like, I feel like I've seen something like this before. But so it, it feels it feels really impactful and um when when it's when it's done right and it's orchestrated well like i really enjoy the impact and the stakes and and this hero's journey that we're on yeah and you know that's one thing that i think invincible especially in the longer run of it actually really does well you know there is there's certainly a build as the stakes keep getting you know higher and higher over the the 144 issues um and I will agree that uh, you know the stuff that you said about there being sort of this edgelord feeling sometimes a little bit. I sometimes wonder, um, you know, this disc I think came on the heels of like the success of The Walking Dead, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder if Kirkman's wires got a little bit crossed because there are places in this book where it gets very, very dark, which is a huge contrast, I think, to how the book starts out. And sure, I mean, there's, you know, escalation is is something that is to be understood in a story, right? But there are places where it does, as you said, feel a little edgelordy. Um, and so th- those, it, it's, it's interesting to recommend the entire run to somebody and say, but, you know, with qualifications, there are things that you're probably yeah. not going to enjoy because sometimes Kirkman pushes a little too far. And some of the stuff almost feels like it would be more at home in something like The Walking Dead, if that makes sense. I wish you would have dialed it back a little bit for this. Yeah. Um, Dave, I'm very interested to talk about your second like. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, this is not um, a, a, sort of the deconstruction of a superhero story, right? This is very, very embedded into like, this is the genre. I'm telling a superhero story and I don't feel guilty for it. You know, like a lot of the times when people try to launch um a post DC and Marvel new superhero, there is a little bit of genre guilt, right? Like, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm trying to tell a superhero story. Let me make a, you know, edgier or make me make it weirder or try to invert the tropes or this superhero is not earnestly trying to be a superhero or something like that. Right. And at least in the beginning, I will say that this this book really just establishes a straightforward, this is a superhero story. I'm not here for deconstruction. I don't feel guilty for telling the story. It's just a superhero story. It just happens to be a new superhero that's that's not DC and Marvel. But we can still play with, with, with that genre and, and within that sandbox and tell an interesting story. And I think as weird as that sounds, that's, that's almost refreshing, right? I, I'm... I'm a 40-year-old guy who is definitely not feeling guilty about reading superhero comic books, mm-hmm. right? I don't need a superhero comic book that basically projects guilt back at me. Like, I'm so sorry I'm telling a superhero story. Like, no, that's why I bought this book. I want a superhero story. Stop apologizing for telling a superhero story. And so this is not that, especially in the beginning. It's very, very much embedded in sort of the trappings of the genre, and it presents those things completely guilt-free, no deconstruction. I love that. I, I wish there was more of that when people try to tell a new kind of superhero story. Yeah, and I know I, I seem to be beating up on this property a lot, but it's just, 
I feel like it's so disingenuous, but the boys, like this, this is, this is the principal reason why I can read or watch Invincible and enjoy it because while there are those edgelordy moments, it's not overbearing and they are, they're kind of like a final seasoning on there. They're, they're aspects of it. It's not the overwhelming premise of the show. And, and I think, and I've talked about this before, but like, I think the, my problem with the boys is if your entire premise is everyone is awful. Why do I want to escape from a world that can beat you down, that can stress you out? Why, why is that my escapism? And I think that's a, it's a welcome change here. So I have not, um, I've not watched the boys. I've not read. The, I've not read. I the watched. Boys. I watched ten minutes and I couldn't. I will say this: um, my understanding from from just talking to to fans of the TV show who've also read the book is that the book is is god awful, and and that's sort of. You I've know, heard. I've heard that as well. If you're a fan of the book, bless you. Okay, I, I will one of these days maybe try to make, draw my my own opinion on it. But based on everything I've heard of it, it's just not for me. I don't think I'm the target audience for it. However, I think from what everybody's saying about the TV show is that it it takes that premise and it it spins that story very differently. And at least there's some kind of redeeming value to it. It feels much more. Um, like like a valid story than just an excuse to you know put a whole bunch of cringy edge lordy 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 stuff on the page right and and because of that and because of the involvement of Eric Kripke who was of course you know the the guy who created Supernatural and and in charge of that show for the first five seasons there is a there's a part of me that wants to at least check it out I'm a big fan of Supernatural I enjoyed that show a great deal particularly the early seasons and uh, you know. Kind of, kind of. The guy has has built up some, um, let's say, some capital with me, where I'm almost willing to give the show a shot and see what all the hubbub is about. But then there's the evil Superman trope, which I'm really tired of. So, um, you know, it's it, that that one's a difficult one. I know that the book is definitely not for me, based on what people have told me. But the TV show, there might be something there. Um, but this is not that, and I'm very pleased about that. And Chris, what was your second like of Invincible Volume 1? I love that it's a smooth read. It's fast. It's immersive. Like, so um, a peek behind the curtain again. I've been giving those away uh, quite frequently. But I thought we, like, we were just going the first four issues. Um, and then, like, I had previously read longer than that. And so I just breezed through the first four issues. Um, and then I had seen stuff in our shared document that you had gone, obviously, further than that. And then, so I was like, you know what, I'll just read the, you know, six through or uh, five through eight as well. And I did that all in less than an hour. So this is a, a, and, and I'm a slow reader, but the fact that like, you can pick up the pace, you can, you can easily fly through this. Um, I could, I could probably easily look up and be 30 issues in, in a couple of days. So I, I really appreciate that. And the fact that everything is seamless when it comes to the storytelling of it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I got into Invincible once, read a whole bunch of it, and then kind of fell off the wagon. And then I came back to it when it was all done. And I sat down and I read, and I think I read like all on all 144 issues in something like a week. Like it is a very, 
I don't want to say that it's not, you know, layered or dense or whatever, but it is paced extremely well. It's it's really readable, you know, if that makes sense. It doesn't really feel like like working really hard for it, right? Like it's very breezy, as you said. It moves along at a good pace. You don't get wore out from it or anything. Like sometimes when I read those um, those uh, post uh, Crisis on Infinite Earth Superman books, they're very wordy. There's a lot going on on each page, and they're kind of exhausting. They take a lot longer to get through, you know. And this is sort of the, this is sort of not that. It's, the pacing is really fantastic on this. I totally agree. It's funny because as a as a fan of of creators like Chris Claremont, who's very wordy, very Shakespearean. Um, and and Jonathan Hickman, who gives you like graduate level homework with these data pages, uh, then you have something like this. And uh, I'm I'm also I've been slowly working through Walt Simonson's Thor because um, it it packs so much uh, in in those issues as well. It's funny to kind of I almost feel kind of like like I'm grabbed by the the seat of my pants and just jerked along on this very fast moving train with the uh, with the uh, the difference between yeah absolutely within those books yeah that makes sense man all right dave so your third and final like of these first eight issues of invincible now i I'm, I'm trying not not to be a little cheater here because i know that there's more coming but just looking at at the issue itself i think it was issue five um alan the alien <laughs> yeah. I, I just yep. I just love Alan the Alien. Like, I like that character. I like the whole fight that he has with Invincible in that issue. And then just like the revolutionary idea of let's stop punching each other. Let's just talk about it, you know? And then kind of how just like the story of him like going around and testing champions to make sure that they're they're ready, you know, and prepared. Like that whole setup is really cool. That character is really cool. That design is really cool. I, I'm here for Alan the Alien. I just really like that character, man. Yeah, it's really, really fun. And if you've watched, I, I need to watch season two, but the first season of the show, um, a really fun portrayal by Seth Rogen. So um, I, I like how that kind of subverts your expectations and kind of plays with what you think is going to happen there. And it's almost it's almost a little bit uh, breaking of the fourth wall, that encounter in issue five. And so it's it's really, really fun. It it it, re- it reminds me a little bit, uh, as all the good stuff does. It reminds me a little bit of Superman, right? The idea that you don't always have to punch it out. You know that there are other solutions that you need to try sometimes. Um, and so and so seeing that represented here, I thought it was really really cool. Also, where is Urath? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Chris. So, what is your uh, what is your final like of the first volume of Invincible? I think we've we've hinted at it, but I just want to come out and say it. I think Mark is a great protagonist and a great POV character. Now, maybe that's my ultimate Spider-Man bias, my young teenage protagonist bias that I've always kind of uh, linked to. But I think him and seeing kind of firsthand like his experience is is extremely relatable, even with the added elements of superhero comics. Like I, I can, I can empathize and sympathize with this kid and i i think it's probably the the greatest strength of at least these first eight issues is he's incredibly relatable um there are some tropey things that i'll get to in the dislikes but i i really dig this kid and i'm rooting for him 
I know I can agree with everything you said. Just said, I think you're exactly right. Mark is a great protagonist, and he is very reminiscent of sort of an, uh, a teenage Peter Parker, isn't he? Um, and I think that was probably on purpose. That there's a you know the teenage superhero like that is a great archetype in in superhero storytelling. And so starting Invincible off with that archetype and then layering that and building on that, which is what the what the series ultimately does, I think was a really really smart move. It's an in for a lot of fans of superhero fiction to kind of immediately identify with that character. Very, very smart writing. All right, let's head into the negative. We have to balance this out. We've been we've been effusing praise. Uh, Dave, your first dislike is really interesting because I'm not sure that I agree. You'll have to sell me on this. So I'm really of two minds on this, Chris. On the one hand, um, I think it was very smart to take some time and really establish the characters and the world and and so in in a way the slow burn is kind of cool right i think it it works for the story on the other hand if you look at the trajectory of this it it doesn't actually hit what's really going on in this story until issue 7 and that's the big turning point right and even when they were making um the the television show the cartoon they were talking about how they cannot wait that long to hit the audience with the twist because they essentially would be sending the message that message that this is just like a traditional regular old superhero story and because those are tropes that are so well worn and have been used so often um there is not really something interesting or different or special to hook people right and so they move that twist up in the tv show earlier into the first season to make sure that that people would get hooked on what's actually going on and I think to a certain extent, the slow burn would have worked a little better if, I, if there were just a little bit more hints throughout the book that there's more going on than what we see on the surface. But I don't think there's a whole lot of that here. And because of that, those first, you know, those first few issues until you get to that twist at the end of issue seven, um, it it feels very much like, oh, well, you know, this is Image Comics' version of something like Ultimate Spider-Man. It's fine, you know? But but there is a hook here that people don't know until they get to that issue. Now, if you think of that unfolding in real time, we're talking about we're talking about seven months of comics, right? Over over half a year of comics before you see what this book is even about. You know, so so in retrospect, now going to and, and reading a trade and being like, oh, yeah, OK, I get it, you know, at the end of the first trade or whatnot, that's fine. But when you look at this, it as a serialized story with a piece of the story every month, I almost feel like short of having some kind of hints that there's more going on than meets the eye. It was almost too slow burn. So I love that that you know it was taking its time to establish the world and the characters and everything, but it needed something to at least hint at the at the underlying premise that there's more going on than you think. Does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, I think I will say I think the the type of media I think makes a difference, and so I think it makes sense if you would have gone the whole first season and full spoilers for. The reveal of Omni Man being the the main villain, I think, if you would have waited the entire first season and you have this just white picket fence kind of family, like traditional like progeny of like son learning from dad, I think that would not have landed well. 
I think with the medium of comic books, I think you can play that out a little bit better. I don't disagree that a couple of breadcrumbs would have added to that, but I'm I'm okay with it the way that it happened. And also, this entire conversation is kind of moot if you're coming to the comic from the show, because even yeah. when watched the show, the memification of that like infamous scene from the show where no one's beaten the you know what out of Mark. And like it's been memed to death. Um, yes, it's I, everybody knows. I think, now, this is, right? I think this is all a moot point anyway. You know. Yeah, for me, this is this is very much just you know the, the I guess the writer in me thinking about the mechanics mm-hmm. of the story and how you know how it's originally published and how the the original audience will perceive it. Like I said, going back to it now and reading it in trade, I don't think there's any real problem. But just, you know, looking at, at the at the mechanics of it and how it was originally presented, waiting seven months to understand what the book is about without any breadcrumbs feels like quite a gamble, I guess. Um, so I wish there would have been just a little more hints going to that big reveal. And Chris, what was your first dislike of the... Uh, <laughs> of the oh, this is going to be fun. Of, of Invincible Volume 1. I think Invincible is a terrible name. It's a terrible superhero name. Like it's I I don't I don't know if it's cliche. It just it does nothing for me. Like it does not move me in the slightest. Um and robots even worse. <laughs> robot's name is just robot. And what is he? He's a robot. So I think I don't know if they were going for something tongue in cheek there, but it just did not land. Now Robot himself is a fascinating character, as we will spoilers watch him continue to develop in subsequent issues after this but yeah i don't i got i got nothing i i wish he had a better name the costumes okay as well you know it's really interesting i think i think there's a couple of, <laughs> there's, there's a couple of interesting things going on here i think on the one hand there's something about the eye um because it's image comics and if you ever really like look at the costume. The costume looks like an eye with the dot on the top mm-hmm. and everything. It almost feels like sort of like this is the poster child for Image Comics now. Here he has even his, even his costume is an eye, right? And so in order the, to achieve that, you need an it's really eye the, word. It's really the swimming goggles that are egregious to me. <laughs> the, the, and, and I think within the context of the story, at least, maybe not from the in the context of like from the creator's perspective, but in the context of the story, I think it makes sense that a that a cocky teenage boy would run around trying to call himself invincible of all That's things, true. right? That's true. Like it, it it fits very much with with the uh, the place in his life that Mark is in when he when his powers manifest. A, a but mid yeah, two, it's a mid two thousands teenager. Now yes. a teenager would call himself like no cap or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not wrong. Uh, so. Um, I, like I said, I think with, within the context of the character, it makes sense, but it's very nondescript to have as a title across the front of a comic book, right? I almost feel in some ways that the book eventually succeeded kind of in spite of, you know, some of those decisions, you know, like delaying that reveal for seven months or having just Invincible as the title, you know, you almost feel like it could have been a little more inventive in that regard. Sure. I think it within the context of the story, it works fine. All right, so we have hinted at the Edge Lord stuff for this book, and here it is, Dave. Yeah, so one of my dislikes is the Edge Lord stuff of it all, right? It's it's icky. There is a lot of icky stuff going. I on, wonder right? is it is it part of like the contract with Image 
Like, is, is that part of the contract agreement? I don't know. If I ever get a, a contract with Image Comics, I'll let you know. But right. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. I will let you know. But um, but no, I I don't know. Um, it's it's like I said earlier, right? I think Kirkman in some places just pushes it a little further than is really necessary for the story, right? And it gets it gets icky, right? Like the the stuff with um with Adam Eve's boyfriend Rex Splo cheating with with Triplicate, right? Um. Which is as icky as it sounds. If you realize the implication is that triplicate can can multiply herself, right? Can split into multiple people. Um, it's a little icky, right? People, not just two people involved. Yes, let's put it that way. Um, so, so that that feels unnecessarily icky, right? I mean, you know, um, cheating happens in stories and 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 in real life, and it's a perfectly valid you know choice to do with a story like this. But but the, the 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 triplicate issue of it all just kind of pushes it a little into more uncomfortable territory. The thing with Mark's friend, I forgot his name, even though he insists he always uses full name. William. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um. So the thing with Willie, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that drove me crazy is when he finds out that that Mark is a superhero and asks him to take him flying, and and Mark's response was, "This is so gay." Like, oh, mid two thousands. So did, mid two thousands. Oh, that that did not age well, right? And I will even say, like, and I know this is slightly outside of the eight issues we looked at, but even when we get to the confrontation between Mark and Nolan, I don't think it needed to be that gory and bloody. You know, like I think it's just pushed a little f- too far out of bounds. I think you could have had the exact same effect um, with a little bit of restraint. Right, but that but that's one of the problems I think for the entire run of Invincible is that sometimes it just goes a little too far, um, and not in a way that it's like yeah, I, I'm not sitting here, especially especially as a writer of horror stories. Right, I'm not sitting over here advocating for for Kirkman not to like tell the story he wants to tell, but from a reader perspective on it, I think I think some of those moments don't really accomplish anything. Right when you're when you're dealing with the excess of that violence, for example, or the ickiness of that triplicate situation, I think you would have had the exact same effect on the reader and on the story if you would have not done that. If that makes sense, and so it seems like an odd choice to push it that hard in in some places. So the the, the icky stuff is what I call it. I'm, I'm as much as I love the book. There's there's some icky stuff in there that I don't really enjoy. I'm just a fan of subtlety. And yeah, this, this book is this book says subtlety be damned, and that and that's something that I just have to grapple with. Um, and 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 that's uh, like as I said, this is one that does it to like a maybe a medium amount compared to others. Um, but yeah, it, it's I, I'll get I'll get more into like some of those specifics that you pointed out. But like it's just like okay, it's almost like an eye roll. Like okay, this is the part where this happens. Yeah, pretty much. All right, Chris, let's go ahead and get into your uh, your great value brand uh, problem here. <laughs> I I get what we're going for with the satire of like, and I know that you said this was not like a deconstruction of the superhero genre, but like, again, this is probably a lack of subtlety as well, I think, um, with the Great Value Justice League and like how we do this one page introduction for each of the members just to kill them off. Um, 
and like I get what they're going for some of the tongue in cheek stuff, but I I'm just a fan of being more original than that. Like some of it works well, like the whole fact that Reginald Vell Johnson, aka Carl Winslow, is the principal. Uh, you have like an Urkel sighting that's fun and that's playful. Um, there's one, I think it's the the scene where they're touring the college. Like there's a dude like dressed like Charlie Brown to bring it all back full circle for from our news story. Um, yeah. And so like that's fun and playful, but like I I don't, I don't know. I I don't know if satire is my my thing here in superhero comics. May, I know that Image has kind of made its real estate in in stuff like this, uh, in some respects, but it's just it's just not for me. I, I I'd vote for just making original like the characters that Invincible in this Invincible universe that are more original are much more uh, interesting to me. Uh, like Battle Beast um, is much more interesting. The blue the Blue Brothers are much more interesting. I'm like I'm, the names escaping me, but I, I, the more original characters are much more interesting to me. And maybe they're just cannon fodder. I think that's I think that's exactly what it is. I think that they didn't want to expend the effort on creating a whole bunch of uh, really original and interesting characters just to kill them off immediately. So they they took the cheap route and they basically made analogs, right, of of popular superheroes. And it's real telling in the grand scheme of the story that of all the characters from the original Guardians of the Globe, the one that we see again in some way shape or form is the Immortal which is probably out of that bunch, the most original, right? Um, so it makes sense. I, I think I think they were that was just um, a shorthand, uh, I guess. Like you know, you know these archetypes, uh, you know what they stand for, and now you understand what what the impact is if we kill them off. I think if they would have went completely original, they would have had to done a lot more heavy lifting to introduce and explain those characters, which may have felt like a waste of effort considering there were no plans to really use them further. But I will agree 100%. I'm a huge fan of the Justice League, and I'm very tired of every, every uh, comic book publisher having to have at least one Justice League analog, right? Like, like we don't need that, okay? We can do better. Well, we the, as as of the time of this recording could have been our one of our news stories is this Suicide Squad killed the Justice League is getting like horrible reviews. So it's kind of funny. Yeah, and deserved, I think, from from at least a story perspective. I don't know about the gameplay, but from what I've seen of the story, I'm not impressed. All right, Dave, let's talk about your villain origin story. Yeah, my villain story is very simple. I am so sick and tired of seeing evil Superman. I am sick and tired of seeing evil Superman in DC stories, mind controlled, uh, hint, hint, kill the Justice League, um, or, or you know, Elseworld stories where he's evil, or every comic book company under the sun coming out with a Superman analog who happens to be evil. And what do we get here? Here we get Omni-Man, who's basically Superman analog, right down to being, you know, from another planet. Hey, hint, hint, he's evil. I'm a, man, I know that they do more complex stuff with the character later, but when you're just looking at the start of the story here, I'm just tired of this trope of evil Superman. I don't think... Any superhero gets as many evil stories as he does. You know, like, how many evil Spider-Man stories have we had? How many evil Wonder Woman stories have we had? You know, like, not nearly the amount of evil Superman. 
back off my boy. He's not evil. Deal with it. Why do you have to take a, a great character who's a, a paragon of morality and always take a dump on him? Like, if that's your first reaction when you see a character who is good down to his core is, well, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make an evil version. You know, that's just, that's icky, man. It's icky. Stop with the evil Superman stuff. I'm tired of it. Thank you. This was my public service announcement. <laughs> I'm I'm going to go ahead and combine mine in here because uh, I said some tropes are invincible, I guess. And that is chief among them. But even more than that, you have... Um, the whole star-crossed lovers, will they, won't they, between Mark and, and Eve. Uh, you have the love triangle that is just now starting as of the, this, this series of issues with, with Amber. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just, ah, like, you want to, I, I, and it all comes back to, I think, make something original, like create new tropes. Like I just I don't don't just play the hits and uh, the 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 Adam Eve stuff especially uh, you have them getting caught in the bedroom just talking uh, like I have I've seen this play out on so many sitcoms let alone comic books like I'm good. It's definitely playing the classics. This is definitely greatest hits of of the superhero genre at least in the beginning, right? Um, and again, uh, the book definitely goes into a, its own direction as it progresses, and some of it is very, very interesting and and good. Um, but but the foundation definitely is. The, these are the classics. These are the greatest hits, and we're going to use that as the foundation to build something on. So if you take the the first trade sort of by itself, um, it does feel very tropey. Um, I guess the best way to put it is it does get better <laughs> as it goes along when it comes to like just wallowing in tropes. Um, there are still some. But uh, but yeah, I, I I will wholeheartedly agree. It's very tropey in the early goings. All right, final grade of these first eight issues, Dave. I give it a B. I th- I think for what it is, it's very very good. Um, I, I liked it a great deal. You know, I mean, but that's because I am a superhero guy. You know, I like these tropes. I like I like the framework of a classic superhero story. The art really carries a lot of it for me and the coloring. I think that that really sets the tone for what this book is trying to be much more than the writing does early on, right? Um, But yeah, I enjoyed it a great deal. There's a reason that I kept reading and read the whole thing, you know? I mean, I really do enjoy it. Um, There are definitely things that that haven't aged very well and, and Kirkman's tendency to kind of push into icky territory sometimes fits with with his other big hit the walking dead i think a lot more than with a classic sort of um superhero story um but ultimately i think a lot of it comes out in the wash and it's just a really solid book yeah i'm gonna go i'm gonna go b plus i think um i think the unapologetic nature that you mentioned for what it is um and the strength of mark as a character as a protagonist as a pov character I think that really carries it to me that I'm willing to overlook the dislikes, to overlook the tropes, to overlook the edge lordy stuff. And so this is something I know I have a lot of spinning plates, but like this is something that I plan on revisiting and finishing. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, that wraps up our byword big talk. We are now headed to nerd commendations after this. Welcome back to our final segment. It is the 
final send-off of every episode where we take the good stuff that we've been enjoying, whether it's comics, video games, shows, or films, and we nerd-commend them, recommend them to you. We call it... Dave, uh, we're nothing if not consistent, uh, consistent in, in our likes. Yeah, it's real funny if our schedule holds, and I think this uh, episode of The Byword will actually drop uh, right around the time that this book releases, which is kind of cool. So uh, my nerd commendation this week is for the uh, trade paperback collection of a miniseries from IDW called Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Dog of War. Um, it was written by Mike Chen with art by Angel Hernandez, colors by Nick Filardi, um, as published by IDW. And the collected edition, as I just said, comes out in February, February 13th. Um, so what this basically is, this miniseries, is it's supposed to be sort of a lost episode of the show. Like it completely uh, is embedded in sort of the continuity of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So if you didn't watch the show, you're probably not going to get as much out of this um, as a fan of the show, uh, since Chris and I are both fans of the show, uh, this works very well. Um, so IDW was putting out a sort of 30th anniversary miniseries here to celebrate all the stuff that was great about Deep Space Nine. And this five issue miniseries is that a lost episode. Imagine if there was an extra episode that you squeeze in right in uh, the early uh, chapters of season six, right? So uh, we're, we're getting all the classics here, all the classic characters and all the classic behaviors in a new story that we never saw. Um, and the hook is the, is the titular dog of war, a, a corgi uh, by the name of Latinum. So the story is that uh, Quark, the barkeeper who is always getting into something, is uh, doing some shady business that involves a purebred corgi as well as a device that was based on Borg technology and can uh, connect the mind to like computers and stuff and, and allow you to like give instant commands across space. And so one... You know, what What are these characters going to do about this purebred corgi that is now stuck on the station? And two, the Federation takes control of this device should they try to use it in their war against the Dominion. And of course, all the, the chickens come home to roost as all the shady characters involved in Quark's dealings uh, show up and it becomes sort of a, a you know, a big a big sort of action-packed episode as they try to save the Corgi and, and ultimately decide what to do with this device and or if they, you know, whether they should put it in use or not. And I think it's it's really, really a strong book. Uh, for one, the art from uh, Angel Hernandez here really captures um, the characters perfectly. But it's not one of those artists here that is trying to like create something photorealistic that looks almost like still shots from, from, the, from the TV show. Instead, what you're getting here is something that is very much an artistic interpretation. And all the characters are instantly recognizable, but at the same time, a little more expressive than what you're used to from the TV show, because it is a comic book after all. And I think the art here works in, incredibly well. Um, not all of the characters get as much to do as I, I would like for them uh, to get, you know, especially as a, as a 30th anniversary celebration. This is very much, um, it's very much Cisco's story. It's interesting how the Borg, uh, as as a collective, ha ha ha, uh, were kind of shunted over to Voyager during this time. Um, 
because of Cisco's, you know, history with the Borg. And I don't think that ever really got explored beyond, you know, the pilot episode, which I think is kind of sad. Um, and so this actually does that, you know, uh, Cisco has to kind of deal with this piece of Borg technology and his feelings towards the Borg and whether he should actually try to implement this piece of technology. Is his history with the Borg clouding his judgment when it comes to this thing? Those are really interesting, you know, character beats that I think fans of of Deep Space Nine are really going to appreciate. Um, so besides, you know, this is a great Cisco story. All your favorite characters are here. The art is absolutely gorgeous and captures the show perfectly. Uh, I think this is a really worthy sort of 30th anniversary celebration and totally worth the price of admission. So, uh, Chris, if you know, as a Deep Space Nine fan, I think you would uh, especially really appreciate uh, this book as sort of a an in-between quill that fits perfectly with the continuity of the show. This is this is fascinating to me, and salute to IDW for taking things that I love and making great comics out of them. Um, so I, I I'm very interested to read this. Like you know, Deep Space Nine has become like hallowed ground for us, I think, and I'm I'm kind of a sad like I've I've mixed emotions about like revisiting this universe because I love it so much, but I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to go forth and and read this because I love these characters, I love this world so much. All right, Chris, rub it in. Your nerd commendation is something that I've been meaning to play and I've not had a chance to yet, and I really, really want to. Listen, I'm done with it now. I just finished yesterday, so I'll be more than happy to lend it to you if you're interested. <laughs> uh, Dave, what what can you say about The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom? I know that um, I made it one of my nerd year's resolutions for the year 2024, and it's because this game and its predecessor breath of the wild just made me fall in love with this entire world these characters it's for those of you that don't know tears of the kingdom is a direct sequel to breath of the wild a game that really shook the table when it came to video games and open world gaming in particular um a lot of people are crediting it as the influence for things like elden ring um, and other video games so it's just it's it's just so much fun. Like it is a month long experience. Like I have done precious little else. Like when we were on winter break, I did nothing else. I just explored this world, did side missions, collected things. And I, so much so in fact that I, I love this so much that I put off this final mission for several weeks because I didn't want this game to be over. It is a visual masterpiece alone. Um, I was I, I was kind of nervous. Number one, I'm not a fan of the $7 price tag. So if you can get it used, get it used. Um, however, um, I was a little bit nervous of, are they going to be able to recapture the magic of Breath of the Wild? And they absolutely did. Uh, it's a visual masterpiece. Um, there are new elements added in addition to what Breath of the Wild was. There are completely different levels to explore. You're exploring the depths underneath uh, Hyrule. You're exploring the sky uh, above Hyrule. And then, you know, of course, Hyrule itself. There's just so much to do that it has packed action pack playing nonstop for the past few months. And there's still so much to do here. Um, and the, the influence can't be understated. Um, 
Like I'm going back and playing Ocarina of Time. I'm going to do Majora's Mask. Like I'm doing the full breadth of this. Um, and it's, it's ad, as advertised. And the fact that it did not win Game of the Year. Baldur's Gate must really be cooking with something. And I plan to visit that one very soon as well. Yeah, you know, I, I'll just be honest with you, man. Everything that you said is is exactly what I'm looking for in playing a sequel to Breath of the Wild. I'm really, really, really looking forward to playing this. It's been on my list for a while. I just haven't quite gotten to it yet. So um, I, I'm, I know I'm taking this nerd commendation to heart, and I'm going to try to find some time to actually play this game. It's, you know, Zelda is my all-time favorite video game series, so I'm totally here for this. All right, that wraps another episode of the Nerd by Word. We thank you so much for joining us on this journey. If you feel so inclined to read the first eight issues of Invincible, we highly recommend it. Uh, And as always, be sure to like and subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice, uh, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or nerdbyword.com. And find us on social media. You can find us uh, wherever uh, social media exists at Nerd by Word or individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. We want to hear what you think of the first volume of Invincible and what your take is on the casting uh, of Supergirl, for example. Anything that we talked about in this episode, let us know how you feel about it on social media. We'll be more than glad to interact and talk. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.